Officials in Southern California are warning of dangerous and life-threatening flash flooding as Tropical Storm Hillary pelts the region with heavy rains. It's Monday, August 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, President Biden is traveling to Maui today to tour the damage left behind by the deadly Lahaina wildfires. Also, Tennessee Republicans want to lower the age at which juveniles can be sentenced as adults. There's a lot of crime going on juveniles in our state, and so we need to look at toughening juvenile laws. And this hour, the EPA plans to disband the panel of scientists who've been monitoring Boston's wastewater for decades, but the scientists say their work is far from completed. Climate change is happening rapidly, and so our conclusions from the past 20 years may not be relevant over the next 10 years. Mostly cloudy in the 80s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Tropical storm Hillary has now been downgraded to a post-tropical cyclone with top winds of 35 miles an hour. But as it blasted Southern California with wind and rain, the region was also struck by one of its more typical phenomena, an earthquake. Sunday afternoon, a magnitude 5.1 quake hit Ventura County north of Los Angeles. Reporter Matt Gillum says the wild weather paired with an earthquake has people unnerved. As residents are already on edge about the first tropical storm in more than 80 years, an earthquake was an added surprise. The Tembler was centered near the Ventura County community of Ojai. Not long after the initial 5.1 jolt, the U.S. Geological Survey says a series of aftershocks hit the region, including one measuring magnitude 3.8. Damage from the Tembler was minimal. One Ojai business reported a $900 bottle of tequila was a casualty. The shaking from the quake could be felt across Southern California. At the same time, the weather system is bringing aggressive winds, pouring rains, and the threat of widespread flooding to the entire region. Governor Gavin Newsom has declared a state of emergency for nearly all of Southern California. For NPR News, I'm Matt Gillum. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un presided over the test launch of a nuclear-capable cruise missile from a warship. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports that the test was reported as the U.S. and South Korea begin large-scale annual military drills. State media pictures show Kim watching from another ship as a cruise missile was launched from a Navy corvette off the country's east coast. The report did not mention when the launch took place. South Korea has warned that the North could launch ballistic missiles or other provocations in protest against last Friday's summit meeting of the leaders of the U.S., South Korea, and Japan at Camp David, or against the annual Ulji Freedom Shield exercises. Those exercises start today and last until August 31st and include computer simulations, civil defense drills, and field exercises including tens of thousands of troops. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. A progressive from outside Guatemala's political establishment has been elected president there, soundly defeating former First Lady Sandra Torres in her third bid for the presidency. NPR's Ada Peralta has the latest. President-elect Bernardo Arevalo would have a tiny minority in Congress, so he's going to have to make deals to govern. And he also has a justice department that he won't really control, and that in the past few days has been threatening to bring charges against him. It's worth noting that those threats have been widely viewed as being politically motivated. And then there's his rival. Sandra Torres has not yet conceded, but the president of the country has congratulated Arevalo and said he's ready to help him with the transition. NPR's Ada Peralta, global markets moving higher even as traders await the Fed's next decision on interest rates. Futures up around 100. This is NPR.
Little League players from around the world are in Pennsylvania complete competing for this year's World Series championship with the team from Tijuana hanging on in the tournament. Rachel McDevitt of member station WITF reports. Canada scored a run in the first inning, but Mexico's players overpowered them with eight runs in the bottom of the fourth. The final score was 10 to 1. Rafael Labarín's son, Arath, pitched the final innings of the game. I have the hope, but he had, he had the passion, so I, it is, it's, it's very amazing to be here and uh, stay supporting my, my, my kid. The Tijuana team is competing in the tournament for the second time. Their last appearance was 10 years ago. Teams from Panama, Rhode Island, and Nevada were also able to stave off elimination and will play again on Tuesday. The series runs through Sunday. For NPR News, I'm Rachel McDevitt in South Williamsport, Pennsylvania. The National Hurricane Center says that Tropical Storm Gert is fast unraveling. It's now located east-southeast of the northern Leeward Islands with maximum sustained winds of 40 miles an hour. A heat wave is moving into parts of Europe this week. Sweltering conditions are expected to stretch from Spain into Central Europe. And France power company EDF took its nuclear reactor near the town of Toulouse offline, citing related environmental reasons. France's health minister says parts of the southwest of France could see about 100 degrees. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Governor Maury Healy today plans to announce over $140 million in loan repayments for Massachusetts health care workers. The administration says it's part of an effort to strengthen the health care workforce. Nurses, mental health counselors, and other workers will be eligible for the money. Each person could get up to $50,000 to cover their loans. In exchange for the loan repayment, the providers will commit to working in underserved communities for two years. Authorities are investigating the death of a Lawrence man who apparently drowned after attempting to rescue two people from a New Hampshire river. Police say 37-year-old Vincent Parr jumped into the water yesterday to rescue his child and the mother's child's mother. He got caught in the current and was pronounced dead at the scene. Two similar drowning incidents occurred in New Hampshire last week. A new migrant welcome center could be coming to Worcester. City officials say they're in talks with state leaders about opening a center to accommodate new arrivals. Worcester leaders tell the Boston Herald they're still working out details. Earlier this year, the state opened welcome centers in Quincy and Alston. A new Gallup survey suggests that Americans see Boston as one of the safest cities in the U.S. The survey asked a 1,000 Americans about their perceptions of city safety. Boston came in second only to Dallas. 72% of respondents said they saw Boston as safe. Mohammed Yunus is Gallup's editor-in-chief. He attributes the results to media coverage of the city. When you think about why Boston has been in the news, it's been that, it's been a baseball victory. They've been a lot of positive stories. When you think about why a city like Chicago has been in the news or my own hometown, Los Angeles, has been in the news, there's a lot more negative stories. Los Angeles, Chicago, and Detroit rounded out the bottom of the list. Only 26 percent of respondents viewed Detroit as safe. It's 7.07. WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation. Since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. 
More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. The Red Sox beat the Yankees yesterday 6-5 to to seal a sweep, a series sweep, that gives the Red Sox momentum as they continue their road trip in Houston tonight. They play the Astros at 8. In your forecast, mostly cloudy today with a chance of late afternoon showers. High, high temperatures will reach the upper 80s. Tonight, the chance of showers continues before about 7 p.m. Then low temperatures will dip into the mid-60s. Tomorrow, sunny and clear with a high near 77 degrees. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles. What's left of Hurricane Hillary has been bringing heavy rain to parts of Southern California that have rarely, if ever, experienced a tropical storm. Some roads are underwater, and the nation's second largest school district won't open today. And millions are being told, just stay home. Aaron Stone with Elliott has been riding out the storm in Palm Springs. Aaron, lots of concerns about high winds, heavy rain in the mountains, maybe causing some floods either in coastal cities or desert communities. How bad has it been? Yeah, there was significant flooding across the region, but as expected, mountain and desert communities, especially the San Bernardino Mountains and the Coachella Valley here where I'm at, saw the heaviest impacts and most flash flooding. Uh, Here in the desert, the soils are so dry that they can't absorb this much water at once. And many streets are actually part of the flood control system here, so they are expected to flood during heavy rains. Um, But there hasn't been as widespread an impact to life as officials originally worried. It seems like the public largely heard the message to prepare ahead of time and stay home, which helped a lot. So that old adage, better safe than sorry, seems to have been the wisdom of the weekend. Yeah, I went nowhere on Sunday. Normally I'd be out, (laughs) but I didn't. Now, a lot of rain all over Southern California. Um, What can you tell us about where this storm has maybe packed the biggest punch? Yeah, so this is the first tropical storm to actually land in Southern California in several decades. So it's fair to say most residents across the region have no living memory of what it is to experience something like this. The storms have broken daily rainfall records across Southern California. So from downtown LA to Palm Springs, here in Palm Springs, for example, we saw more than half a year's worth of rain in just one day. And as you know, schools in the region have also decided not to start class today. Roads have turned to rivers, and there have been dangerous muddy debris flows and burn scars and waterways. Uh, Emergency responders have had to rescue and evacuate dozens of people, including a mobile home park here in the Coachella Valley and a homeless encampment along the San Diego River. And the city of Palm Springs even had its 911 call line go down, though, though people can still text. But You know, the worst of the storm was largely within what governments and emergency responders have expected and prepared for. And there there really haven't been widespread threats to life. And then in the middle of the day yesterday, just as everyone's getting ready for all the weather, all the wet weather, there was an earthquake, which, of course, Erin, uh, I slept right through. Um, <laughs> there was this hashtag, Hurricane. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's California for you, right? <laughs> yeah, a, a Hurricane. It's been reported it was a 5.1 magnitude earthquake near Ojai and Ventura County. That's about 80 miles northwest of L.A. And, you know, there were no immediate reports of major damage or injuries, and it also wasn't related to the storm. It wasn't related to the tropical storm. It was just a good old-fashioned coincidence. 
Yeah, it's got to be a six to wake me up, unfortunately. So what's the day ahead look like? At this point, we're only dealing with remnants of the storm, which we're anticipating will be downgraded to a tropical depression. And it's, it's expected to continue to die down this morning. Skies down here in Palm Springs are expected to be back to their usual sunniness by early afternoon. Through Monday, it'll be moving up into Nevada and to the Pacific Northwest, dying out on the way. So once Southern Californians wake up today, the, the damage assessments can begin in full. Absolutely. Aaron Stone with member station Elias. Thanks a lot, Aaron. Thanks, A. Lawmakers in Tennessee are convening today for a special legislative session on public safety. After a mass shooting at an elementary school in March and the pro-gun control demonstrations that followed, some people have been hoping to see some significant gun safety measures. Right now in Tennessee, if you're 18 or older, you don't need a carry permit. There are no penalties for unsafe gun storage. And Tennessee has among the highest rates in the country for guns stolen out of cars. But as WPLN's Mariana Bacchial reports, state leaders have very different ideas of what safety means. One thing Tennessee House Speaker Cameron Sexton wants to see this special session. There's a lot of crime going on with juveniles in our state, um, and so we need to look at toughening juvenile laws. That's Sexton in an interview with the Tennessee Firearms Association. He said he'd be taking on this issue during the special session instead of a law that would take guns from people deemed to be a threat to themselves or others. State Senator Jeff Yarbrough, a Democrat, says that's disappointing. It's a sad commentary on where we are as a state that we're not willing to think about regulating firearms in any meaningful way, but we're willing to consider giving up on children who are as young as 15 and 16. In his proclamation calling the special session, Governor Bill Lee called for raising the age at which youth can have their records expunged and lowering the age at which they can be sentenced as adults. So far, no one knows what that proposal would look like. But Tennessee already has some of the strictest laws on juvenile sentencing in the country. Last year, the state Supreme Court ruled that Tennessee's practice of sentencing minors to life in prison amounts to cruel and unusual punishment. We did more harm to our youth than we did good. That's Nashville Juvenile Court Judge Sheila Calloway. And for those youth that go deep into the system, their recidivism rates go higher. When they get out, they tend to not be able to survive in our community and they end up being institutionalized. Kylie Graves is with the Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth, an independent commission that keeps track of children's issues. She says juvenile crime where a gun was involved has increased by 26 percent. But then when we look at crimes where a firearm was used against a youth victim, that's gone up by 144 percent. People under 18 are more likely themselves to be the victim than they are to be the offender or perpetrator. Overall, juvenile crime has actually decreased in Tennessee over the past decade by nearly 57 percent, according to data from the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. There is no way that those numbers are are accurate. That's House Speaker Sexton again. He's convinced crime is higher than what's being reported. And he says juveniles who commit certain crimes should get harsher sentences. Right now, a minor convicted of murder in juvenile court faces a minimum two-year sentence. That same minor charged in adult court would get 25. 16, 17 years old and you premeditated killed somebody? I think you should be charged in adult court. Two-year sentence is too soft. But any prison time can take its toll. There's a ton of trauma that comes along with 
being isolated and punished in that way, caged in that way. As a young teen, Ashley Sellers served over 21 years for her involvement in the death of another girl. Sellers now leads the Rafah Institute, which advocates for restorative justice. She says that harsher sentencing, like Sexton's proposal, ignores the root of crime. We stop asking, like, what has happened to you? and start really just asking, like, what's wrong with you? But this legislative session won't give as much room to criminal justice advocates like Sellers to raise these concerns. Lawmakers are expected to adjourn by the end of the week, which doesn't give a lot of time for expert testimony or debate. For NPR News, I'm Mariana Bakayao in Nashville. Landing on the moon is proving quite a challenge for the world space agencies. Russia attempted it over the weekend, but failed. Its newest robotic probe plowed into the lunar surface. Meanwhile, India's space agency is making a second attempt. It crashed a lander in 2019. Join us now to talk about why it's so hard to land on the moon and why these countries keep trying is NPR science correspondent Jeff Brumfield. Uh, Jeff, so, okay, let's start with the Russian probe. What went wrong there? You know, we don't really know. Uh, The Luna 25 mission was the first uh, to go back to the moon for Russia since the heyday of the Soviet Union. The Russians based the mission on old but proven Soviet design. They spent literally decades planning and building it, and yet, just as it was preparing for a uh, gentle touchdown there, they lost contact. Russia's space agency, Roscosmos, says they now believe Luna 25 crashed into the moon, but they didn't say much more than that. In losing Luna 25, though, they've joined this exclusive club of nations that have crashed into the moon recently, including Israel, Japan, and, as you mentioned up there, India. All right, we're going to get back to India in just a second. But first, uh, Jeff, what makes this so difficult? I mean, wasn't the U.S. landing people there in 1969? Yeah, well, the key word there, A, is people. Uh Humans are good pilots, and it turns out robots, even with all their modern sensors and gadgets, just have a tough time sticking to landing. I spoke to Jason Davis at the nonprofit Planetary Society about this, and he said because there's no atmosphere on the moon, probes can't just gently float down at the parachute. You have to use your thrusters, and that means you're going to have a lot of sophisticated calculations as it comes in for a landing to fire these thrusters just right. There's not a lot of uh, margin for error. And in fact, with India's last lunar mission, that's exactly what went wrong. The thrusters didn't perform as expected. The computer got confused and it crashed. All right. So all that makes sense. All right. So India is going to try its second attempt at a moon landing on Wednesday. Tell us more about that mission. Yeah, it's called Chandrayaan-3. It's a small solar-powered lander with a little rover on board. It's basically a carbon copy of the one that crashed. But this time, the India space... The Indian Space Research Organization uh, thinks it can do better, and Davis says he thinks they've got a good shot because they probably learned a lot from that last attempt. If I had to guess, I would say that they'll probably succeed, but, you know, anything can happen in spaceflight. And this time they're trying to land quite close to the intended Russian landing site, which is near the lunar South Pole. South Pole, the lunar South Pole. Why the lunar South Pole? Is there a reason for that? Yeah, so some of the craters in the South Pole are in permanent shadow, and that means there could be water ice down there. Brett Denevi at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory told me that water could be used for a lot more than drinking. If you break it apart, you can make rocket fuel or breathable air for future astronauts on the surface. So China's also planning a mission to the pole, and the U.S. wants to send humans there as part of its Artemis program. 
the South Pole is seen as the place for future exploration on the moon, assuming one of these agencies can actually manage to land there. I will volunteer if they want to send a radio host. That's NPR's size correspondent, Jeff Brunk. <laughs> Jeff, thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, Cambodia's author- authoritarian Prime Minister Hun Sen is stepping down and making his son the country's leader after nearly 40 years in power. It's 720. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. Earth needs darkness just as much as it needs light. There are some new plants showing their flowers only coming out at night and different bird sounds and different smells. A lot of things going on you don't really notice. Human light pollution is pushing back the dark, which is changing the natural world and could be hurting us, too. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly overcast today with a high around 86. There's a chance of showers late this afternoon. This evening, there are more showers possible and we'll have a low around 62. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 77. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com slash radio. From EBSCO, weaving libraries into the web with linked data technology, designed to help make library resources more discoverable for library users, anytime, anywhere. Learn more at ebsco.com. From USPS with Ground Advantage, the new two to five day package shipping service. Ground Advantage details are at usps.com slash advantage. The United States Postal Service, delivering for America. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. A funny thing happened a few years ago. A brand new artist started winning practically all the music awards Australia had to give. And the aria goes to... Genesis Awards, The Australian Music Prize, the Rolling Stone Australia Award, the J Awards, the Air Awards. He just kept winning. This is Genesis Awards' fourth win of the night, making him the most awarded artist of 2021. Now he's got his sights set on America. His second album just came out. It's called Struggler. Yeah, cosmic dread, I got a fistful. If ignorance is bliss, then I'm trying to stay blissful. I know you wanna, I know you wanna. Genesis Owusu might be big in Australia now, but when his family first came to the country from West Africa, the adjustment took time for him and his new neighbors. Immigrating uh, to, to Australia from Ghana definitely led me to uh, being an outsider in the space that I was in. I had never met white people. White people had never met me, so it was like a, a definite strange introduction for the both of us. 
People expected me to do different things. People expected me to walk a different way, talk a different way. Because I guess back then, you know, the only black people that a lot of Australians had knowledge of at the time was like 50 Cent and Eddie Murphy. So I was like either like the gangster or the comedian. And I didn't really fit into either of those roles. So I kind of had to learn how to be myself from a young age. Well, you studied journalism, right? I mean, I did. do any of those skills translate or head over to when you're writing songs? I'm going to be real with you, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, I knew I wanted to do music before I even went into uni to do journalism, but, you know, my parents uh, flew all the way from, from Ghana to give me and my brother an education, and they're very proud of what we do now, but I went to uni to kind of, um, you know, give them the little gift and show them that I appreciate their efforts. Okay, so I was also a journalism major. My, my parents were immigrants. And the mm. second I graduated college, my mom grabbed that diploma and said, this is mine. She <laughs> took it from me. And I understood. I knew that this was more about her kind of accomplishing what she hoped for her children that she didn't get an opportunity to accomplish. Mm, exactly. I felt the pretty much the exact same way. The new album is called Struggler, a theme that uh, runs through a lot of uh, this music. The struggle to make sense of the world, the struggle to, to be who you are in this world, what's The Struggler? It's an album that was definitely framed by the last few years of this chaotic and absurd world that we've all lived in. Being in Australia, we suffered extremely crazy bushfires and then hailstorms and then we all went through COVID together. And every day through that, we kind of all still got up and put on our ties and like kept on trucking. And I think that is so absurd, but also so inspiring. And that kind of held the like foundational subtext for, for what the album exists in, just like the human will to survive and persevere through all odds. Yeah, so the human will to survive, but through a roach, right? Because your protagonist in a lot of your songs is a roach. So here, I'll give some examples of, of roaches in your lyrics and leaving the light, stamp me down, but a roach keeps roaching. Get up, man, green hills, I can see them smoking. Big smile as the flames approaching. I'm a beast, I can feel them poaching. Tell us about that for a second here, like a, a roach in terms of this will to survive, because I know that most people know that roaches can survive almost anything, right? Nuclear disaster and, and roaches will still be around more than likely. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Talking about everything that I just spoke about, like the, these bushfires and global pandemics, when we look at ourselves through that scope, I think for, for me and a lot of people around me, it was really like pulling the rug from under our feet about like how out of control we really are for a lot of the circumstances around us, like these little pests, these little bugs. But somehow, just like the roach, we just manage to keep struggling through and keep walking through. Once you think you killed the roach, you haven't. Once you do, a second one will come out of the woodworks, you know? I just thought it was a, it was a kind of perfect metaphor for us as, as humans. Uh, 
legs in the air, hope God don't attack. Uh, you think God cares about a little roach? Um, that's the question. I think <laughs> that's the that's the question. We do have the roach as the protagonist, but then there's the God character, which is a metaphor for everything that I was just talking about. This, these huge, unrelenting, uncontrollable forces that should, by every logical means, should have crushed us a long time ago. But for some reason, somehow, some way, we just keep on broaching to live another day. Yeah, because it makes me wonder then, I mean, maybe we are a lot stronger than we think we are. We're absolutely a lot stronger than we think we are. Tasks as simple as getting through another day require a great amount of strength that we don't give ourselves enough credit for. So I think, you know, this album goes through a lot of the darkness and, and a lot of like existential questions as to why, but I think under all of that, it's trying to shine a light on how stubbornly powerful we actually are. I'm bleeding from my legs, but it's all right today. It's better out here than the hell where I stay. I That's Genesis Owuso. His new album is called Struggler. Genesis, thanks uh, for sharing your story. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. I punch my way through hell. What other choice can I chose? The puppet strings talk from my head to my toes. I said the world is getting salty. That's the way that it goes. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. Vogue strike a pose. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. The EPA plans to disband the panel of scientists who've been monitoring how Boston's wastewater affects Massachusetts Bay, even though those scientists say their work is far from complete. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is warning that Russia will target other countries if Ukraine doesn't prevail in the ongoing conflict. Speaking before the Danish parliament today, Zelensky said Russia is a threat to the entire region. After our country, they want to carry this suffering further to Europe and to the world. And I'm sure... You hear it, you hear it from Moscow. All of Russia's neighbors are under threat. His remarks came hours after Denmark and the Netherlands announced they will supply F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine in what Zelensky called a historic pledge. Lawmakers in Tennessee will meet this week to address public safety. Blaze Ganey of member station WPLN reports the governor called a special session of the legislature after three children and three adults were killed in a school shooting in Nashville last spring. One thing that many people wanted to see was a red flag law to take guns away from people who are considered a danger to themselves or others. But Republicans have called the idea a non-starter, and it's not expected to get heard during this special session. And I should mention that this is going to be a short session. We're hearing that it'll wrap up on Thursday. That's Blades Ganey reporting. This is NPR News in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi.
Massachusetts Congressman Jake Auchincloss says the United States' relationship with South Korea and Japan is essential to staying competitive with China. That statement follows President Biden's summit with the leaders of those countries last week. As a member of the House Select Committee on China, Auchincloss says partisan politics are putting the U.S. at a disadvantage when it deals with Beijing. That's why I get so frustrated on the committee when my Republican colleagues say, hey, we got to we got to outcompete China in the 21st century. And then they go ahead and they cut funding for science and education. Auchincloss says the U.S. cannot compete with China without funding for science and education. Officials with the Rhode Island Fire Marshal are investigating a major fire on Blanc Island over the weekend. The fire tore through the historic Harborside Inn early Saturday. No one was injured, but it did close the island to visitors on Saturday. Ferry service to and from the island has since resumed. There are dozens of new monarch butterflies flying around Cambridge. The new butterflies were released yesterday as part of the city's efforts to boost the population of the endangered species. For the last nine years, city staffers have helped raise and release the butterflies. North American monarch butterfly populations have declined an estimated 90 percent in the last three decades. It's 732. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. The Red Sox are celebrating a win and a series sweep against the Yankees. The team defeated their division rival 6-5 in New York yesterday. The Sox now continue their 10-game road trip with their final series in Houston. Tonight's game starts at 8. Highs in the mid-80s today under cloudy skies that may give way to showers late this afternoon and evening. Tonight, it'll be in the low 60s, upper 70s tomorrow under clear skies. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. Cambodia's long-serving authoritarian prime minister is officially stepping down. Hun Sen had been in power for more than 38 years. Tomorrow, the Cambodian parliament officially approves the transfer of power to his hand-picked successor, who is his son and former head of the army, Hun Manet. NPR's Michael Sullivan tells us more. Music wafting from a small temple along Phnom Penh's riverfront promenade is one of the few things that feel familiar in the capital these days. The once sleepy French colonial vibe has given way to an increasingly frenetic pace in a city of more and more high-rises and high-end cars, in a country where the 71-year-old Hun Sen 
is the only leader most Cambodians have ever known. The Cambodia that he inherited and the Cambodia of today are virtually unrecognizable. Sebastian Strangio is a journalist and the author of Hun Sen's Cambodia. There's been massive urbanization on his watch, the emergence of a Khmer middle class. And for young Cambodians, Cambodians born today, what they can expect from life is vastly more ambitious than what it was for their parents and grandparents. So it's important to recognize these sorts of changes. Compared to Cambodia's history of civil war, conflict, upheaval, and revolution. Civil war and conflict that Hun Sen was in the thick of. In 1997, then co-prime minister Hun Sen launched a coup, rejecting a UN-brokered power-sharing arrangement with one of his rivals. It was fast, it was bloody, and the former Khmer Rouge commander never looked back. He's shown a willingness to act ruthlessly to shape political reality to his liking. And that has involved the use of force and more recently, the use of the law, the courts to eliminate or neuter any source of potential opposition. Unlike Hun Sen, his successor and son, Hun Manet, grew up in a context of extreme wealth and privilege, educated at some of the best schools in the world. Hun Manet and I became friends when he was at West Point. That's So Paul Ear, an associate professor at Arizona State University. He was at the World Bank when the two met, and they became close enough to eventually attend each other's marriages. He's actually a pretty modest guy, uh, very studious, serious, had interesting conversations. I was also happy then to introduce him to people at the World Bank. West Point, a master's at NYU, and later an internship at the World Bank, all might lead some to wonder if Hun Manet's exposure to liberal Western values might influence his approach to governing a Cambodia that's become an essentially one-party state. His friend Sopalir is skeptical. We've seen this play out in other scenarios where, you know, a ophthalmologist trained in London who is an IT geek takes over for his uh, Syrian dad and commits genocide. Or a Swiss boarding school student becomes the head of North Korea. And during this period of transition, his father Hun Sen won't be very far away. Sebastian Strangio. He's going to remain the locus of power in Cambodia for the foreseeable future. I think that his son will need to learn on the job, and it will be a very, very steep learning curve for him. Hun Sen has tried to help ease the transition for his son by making it wholesale, involving other powerful players in the ruling Cambodian People's Party. A generational change in cabinet positions and other government portfolios that ensures dynastic succession, not just for his family, but for the others as well. So Paul Lear. Young people, the next generation, taking over for typically their parents. You know, that's part of the agreement, right? You stabilize it through having family members take over so that it continues, even though the next generation takes figurative power. But Viraku, who heads the Phnom Penh think tank Future Forum, says there could still be some hiccups. When all of these positions, all of these posts change at the same time, you're bound to create a lot of uncertainties, a lot of questions that hasn't settled, a lot of patronage versus rivalries and groupings and, and maneuvering. These things will not settle uh, within the next one or two years. And then during that period, that competition will then be uh, something to watch. One direction Cambodia won't be heading away from its chief benefactor, China. The incoming prime minister made that clear when he hosted China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, earlier this month and pledged a continuation of the close relationship. 
As China continues to expand and improve, a Cambodian naval base in the south, not far from the South China Sea. In the meantime, the man who's been in power for most of the past four decades has made it clear he'll be watching the transition unfold very carefully, just in case. If my son's in danger, I'll return to be Prime Minister, Hun Sen said, vowing not to let the country plunge into turmoil again. Michael Sullivan, NPR News. Netflix is marking an end to 25 years of mailing out DVDs in red envelopes by offering to send subscribers extra discs from their queue. NPR's Chloe Veltman says fans are welcoming the gesture ahead of the service shutting down at the end of next month, but it's also causing confusion. Longtime Netflix DVD customer Mo Long is a self-described film buff in North Carolina. He says there are 500 movies sitting in his queue right now. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to get through that. Before Netflix ends its DVD service, Long is hoping to get to as many of those films as he can, including 1978's Foul Play. A new comedy thriller starring Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase. Long says once he's done, he plans, as usual, to return the discs to the sender. You don't get to keep the DVDs. You do have to send them back. A Netflix spokesperson confirmed the company is indeed expecting to get the goods back. But Netflix's promotional email doesn't explicitly say that. Because the company is scrapping its DVD service, many subscribers, like Leslie Loudermilk, are assuming it's a giveaway. It appeared to me that at the end of their time shipping these DVDs out, they're yours to keep because, after all, what are they going to do with them? That's a great question to put to a company that has shipped out more than 5 billion discs to customers since launching in 1998. DVDs are not easily recyclable. Most of them end up in landfill. Entertainment lawyer Lindsay Spiller says Netflix couldn't give the DVDs away even if it wanted to. The filmmakers and property rights owners give uh, Netflix uh, a license and then they can sub-license it to their subscribers, but they can't give anybody ownership. They don't have it themselves. They really should have made it clear whether this was a rental and what the return period is versus whether people were getting to hold on to these things. Massachusetts-based Netflix DVD customer Mary Gerby says she hopes the streamer will find ethical ways to dispose of its massive stockpile of plastic. Maybe to get them into libraries. She says she just doesn't want the DVDs to go to waste. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Monday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, preliminary results show an anti-corruption candidate in Guatemala has been voted in as president by a wide margin over a former first lady. Cloudy and mid-80s today. There's a slight chance of showers late this afternoon and this evening. Low 60s tonight, then sunny tomorrow with temperatures in the upper 70s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And Circle Furniture, over 70 years of artisanal craftsmanship rooted in community and sustainability. Seven locations across Mass and New Hampshire. Circlefurniture.com.
Boston officials have plans to revamp the Harvard Street Neighborhood Health Center. That facility provides care to underserved communities. According to documents obtained by the Boston Herald, the group will expand its facility on Blue Hill Avenue in Dorchester. No word yet on when construction could start. There could soon be a new way to commute downtown. A local software company is creating a ferry for travel on the Charles River. The company tells Axios the Wadahapa will be completely electric. It says it will be built specifically to travel on the river's shallow waters. A famed Boston oyster house has made the list as one of the 150 most legendary establishments in the world. Union Oyster House ranked 43rd on the list from Taste Atlas. Union is the oldest restaurant with continuous service in the U.S. It's also the only restaurant designated as a National Historic Landmark. It's 744. A group of researchers recently claimed that a new material could lead to a scientific breakthrough in superconducting. Social media was buzzing with the news, but other academics were skeptical. We tried to get electric current through it. We just couldn't. The scientific reality of LK99 on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process, Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place, more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Every day, the Deer Island Treatment Plant cleans more than 300 million gallons of greater Boston's wastewater and then dumps it into the ocean. For decades, the EPA has required that an independent panel of scientists monitor the wastewater's effects on Massachusetts Bay. But the EPA now plans to disband that group. And as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, that's raising concerns about who will be watching the bay. Not everyone remembers how dirty Boston Harbor used to be. But Bruce Berman does. There was so much pollution in Boston Harbor. The water was green and brown on Sundays. Berman was the longtime spokesman for a nonprofit called Save the Harbor, Save the Bay. And they wanted the harbor cleaned up. We were discharging 250 million gallons of crap out of a broken pipe right off the mouth of the harbor. You could see that plume from space. I mean, there was a song about it. The fix was expensive. It included a multi-billion dollar treatment plant on Deer Island and a nine and a half mile pipe to carry treated wastewater into the bay. Not everyone loved this pipe idea. People on the North Shore and Cape Cod thought Boston's dirty water would pollute the bay and become their problem. 
Pam DeBona is the director of Massachusetts Bay's National Estuary Partnership. I was there when the Nine Mile Pipe was turned on, and everybody's like sitting there crossing their fingers, what is this really going to mean mm-hmm. for the system? It was a good question. So the EPA added something novel to Deer Island's discharge permit. It was a requirement that an independent group of scientists monitor that wastewater and its effect on the bay. They were charged with coming together and keeping an eye on the data. The scientists on the advisory panel are all volunteers, experts in chemistry, oceanography, marine biology, and statistics. And they've studied everything from fish health to algae blooms to oxygen levels in the water. Their most surprising finding, 20 years in, was that the treated wastewater wasn't really hurting the bay. We've been studying that since 2000. Joe Rosen is an oceanographer and statistician. He's on the science advisory panel. And the conclusion is that the environmental concerns have been answered and that the outfall pipe is not having any, it's not having adverse um, effects. So the EPA is planning to discontinue the panel when it renews Deer Island's permit this year. After all, its work is done. But the scientists say they're just getting started. Juanita Urban-Rich is an associate professor at UMass Boston and a member of the advisory panel. I think we need to be looking ahead. Climate change is happening and it's happening rapidly. And so our conclusions from the past 20 years of monitoring may not be relevant over the next coming 10 years. For instance, new species of algae are moving into the bay and pockets of low oxygen water are popping up more frequently. There's no evidence that Deer Island wastewater is the culprit, says oceanographer Judy Peterson. She's the current chair of the science panel. But the ecosystem is changing. You know, climate change is making everything kind of mixed up. And to some extent, we don't know how or what role uh, Alpha will play in that. There will still be data gathered on the health of the bay, but it's unclear how or if it will be made available to scientists and the public. There are also concerns about who will guide the data collection and who will analyze it. Again, oceanographer Joe Rosen at a meeting of the panel earlier this year. Who is going to be looking at Mass Bay uh, for the problems that are currently emerging? And it's not just the dissolved oxygen. It's also a lot of other things, including the PFAS, the forever chemicals, which we haven't really started even looking at. The advisory panel could possibly continue independent of the EPA permit maybe at a local university. But the scientists will have little clout unless they get some kind of official government mandate, says Judy Peterson. I don't mind that they don't have us in the permit as long as they have us somewhere where we report either to the state or to EPA, because that really is what you need. If you don't have that, they they won't care. Peterson says that climate change has added urgency to the work. Things are changing quickly, she says, and the science needs to keep moving ahead. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, incidents of concert goers throwing objects at artists on stage seem to be increasing. That's leading to increased enforcement, including criminal assault charges. It's 7.50.
I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday, Monday morning. Preliminary results show an anti-corruption candidate in Guatemala seems to have won the presidential election there by a landslide. Schools in California are closing today because of rain and flash flooding from Tropical Storm Hillary. And former President Donald Trump says he'll skip the first Republican presidential primary debate on Wednesday. There's a slight chance of late afternoon showers today. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy and in the mid-80s early this evening. There are more showers possible as temperatures fall to the low 60s. Tomorrow, clear skies and upper 70s. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. How many countries would want to belong to a club that has Russia as a member? The answer is, well, quite a few. They're showing interest in joining BRICS, the grouping of world economies that includes Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. BRICS is holding a summit in Johannesburg this week. NPR's Philip Reeves says its rising prominence appears to be partly linked to the war in Ukraine. The United States Congress is on its feet. This is a standing ovation for Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky during his visit to Washington last December. Thank you so much. Zelensky delivers an upbeat message. We defeated Russia in the battle for minds of the world. Then Zelensky adds this. We have to do whatever it takes to ensure that countries of the Global South also gain such victory. The term Global South isn't really geographic. It refers to the world's poorer, often post-colonial countries, but also to the BRICS nations. It's territory where Zelensky's battle for the minds of the world is a long way from victory. I think countries in the Global South are saying, if you have a problem with Russia, it doesn't make us our problem. Sanusha Naidu is from the Institute for Global Dialogue based in South Africa, the country hosting the BRICS summit. We are independent countries. We can make our independent decisions. We don't have to be corralled into taking up side based on how others want to see it. There's resentment within the Global South over being pressured to impose sanctions and also over the attention the US and its allies give to this conflict, but not others. Horji Hein is a former Chilean ambassador to three BRICS countries. For many countries in the Global South, to make this war into a global war, into a unique war is quite inappropriate, and they strongly disagree with it. BRICS nations account for four out of every ten people on the planet. That number could soon grow. South Africa says some 40 nations have either applied to join the group or expressed an interest in doing so, reportedly including Saudi Arabia and Iran. I think it's the Western tone of moral superiority that gets these countries really worked up about this. When the West itself is violating principles and norms of international law all the time. Matthias Spector is Professor of International Relations at the Fundação Getúlio Vargas in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The question of whether and how to admit new members will be high on the summit's agenda. 
Spectre says China is pushing for expansion. Because China conceives of the BRICS as a group in which the chief purpose is to show the world that there is an alternative to the Western international order. Jim O'Neill used to be top economist at Goldman Sachs. Still today, the Chinese call me the father of the BRICS every time I ever speak to one. BRICS matters to China, says O'Neill. They think it gives them a real voice in this never-ending argument that they need to have a bigger say in the World Bank, the IMF, WTO and so on, and they're right. On that, they are definitely right. The Chinese call O'Neill the father of BRICS because of an article he wrote 22 years ago. In it, he flagged Brazil, Russia, India and China, BRIC as he called it, as emerging economies deserving a greater role in global governance. The group was set up a few years later using the acronym O'Neill invented. It added the S later after South Africa joined. O'Neill is unimpressed with its performance so far. The BRICS political leaders have not really achieved anything since they first started meeting in my view, other than this remarkable symbolism. BRICS should set clear criteria before admitting new members, says O'Neill. Do these countries bring something that the BRICS don't have already? Will they bring something that will make the economic and social performance of the current members better than it was before? As the BRICS club jets into Johannesburg, one key player will be missing. Vladimir Putin faces an arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court. As a signatory to the court, South Africa would have been obliged to detain him, though they probably wouldn't have done so, says Shivshanka Menon. Problem is the day after. What do you do with it the morning after? And uh, is the world really going to take this on? Menon's a former foreign secretary and national security advisor of India. He dislikes the term Global South. Its countries differ greatly and often have conflicting national interests, he says. Yet Menon admits they share some big issues that need attention, including... Issues of debt, issues of development, issues of climate change. BRICS has a reputation in the West as a mere talking shop. Now, as it prepares for its 15th summit, the mood is changing. The system of global governance is under growing stress, says Matthias Spector in Brazil. The system is becoming more dangerous by the day. And if on top of all the problems we have already, then you alienate the countries from the south, then we are asking for trouble, really. The West needs to pay attention, he says. Philip Reeves, NPR News. Researchers in California have been studying which parts of the brain are responsible for processing music. So they played this song to a group of patients with electrodes implanted in their brains. They probably chose Pink Floyd because they're at UC Berkeley. Daniel Levitin was not involved in this research, but he's a neuroscientist who's been studying music in the brain for 30 years. He says the scientists led by UC Berkeley professor Robert Knight were able to reconstruct another brick in the wall part one by recording a patient's neural activity. There are populations of neurons that fire in synchrony with the tempo of music, and then there are other neurons that are trying to pick up the pitch. One of the neurons will fire to one of the pitches, another neuron will fire to another, and then we can play back that firing pattern. And as a final demonstration, they take this computerized reconstruction of the neural outputs and they play them through a loudspeaker. Oh, no. 
These are early days, but they captured enough of it that the song is recognizable by the average listener. Leviton hopes this research can lead to neuroprosthetics that would help a wide range of people. We're talking about people with strokes, people who were born deaf and rely on cochlear implants. Their research could allow a paralyzed musician or a voiceless musician to create music with their thoughts. Which means imagined music could become real and heard. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The first tropical storm to hit California in nearly 85 years has battered the state, causing dangerous flash flooding and mudslides. It's Monday, August 21st. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, supporters of an anti-corruption candidate in Guatemala are celebrating his apparent win in the presidential election. Also, despite opposition from mining companies, the federal government is working on new regulations that would protect all U.S. miners from exposure to silica dust. This agency's mission is very clear, and it's not just focused on coal miners. You know, I can't in good conscience leave any miners behind in this. And this hour, some immigrant families seeking shelter in Massachusetts are staying in units without staff or support. I had an organization call me about two weeks ago, and at that time they were telling me about like 10 families that had no access to food. Mostly cloudy in the 80s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. On Maui, the wildfire-stricken town of Lahaina is bracing for rain from tropical cyclone Fernanda. NPR's Jennifer Ludden reports that water runoff could carry toxic chemicals into the ocean. The seaside town of Lahaina is now a hazardous site after the intense blaze two weeks ago left ash laced with lead, asbestos, and other chemicals. To keep rains from washing toxic debris into the ocean, officials have wrapped up storm drains. The Coast Guard has also put large booms around eight pipes that drain into the ocean, says Lieutenant Trenton Brown. It's like a sponge, and what it does is it stops that oil, absorbs it, and allows the water and uh, other things to go by. Officials also warn of possible mudslides and advise swimmers to avoid any brown water. Jennifer Ludden, NPR News, Maui. President Biden is expected to arrive on fire-ravaged Maui today. He issued a statement on the social media platform X, formerly known as Twitter, that he and First Lady Jill Biden plan to meet with the first responders of Lahaina, spend time with families and community members, and see firsthand what the community will need to recover. Post-tropical cyclone Hillary is bringing intense rainfall to northern Mexico and southern California. NPR's Julia Simon reports that areas east and southeast of Los Angeles are seeing flash floods. The Eisenhower Hospital in Rancho Mirage, California, is having to move the water out of the emergency department. An employee tells NPR the ambulance bank was flooded and that as of Sunday evening, the hospital is running on a backup generator. There's also flooding and road closures in other areas east 
west of Los Angeles like Palm Springs and Indigo. The Los Angeles Unified School District is closing schools Monday. Southern California also experienced an earthquake on Sunday, but there are no immediate reports of damage. Because of the storm, the L.A. mayor has warned residents to stay home and avoid getting in their cars and on the roads. Rainfall flooding is the number one killer in hurricanes. Julia Simon, NPR News, Santa Monica. The BRICS Summit of Developing Economies, including Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, begins in Johannesburg on Tuesday. Kate Bartlett reports South Africa has sought to assure a West worried about a new power block that it isn't picking sides. South Africa President Cyril Ramaphosa addressed the nation ahead of the summit, stressing the democracy, which also has strong relations with China and Russia, would not, quote, be drawn into a contest between global powers. He said South Africa, which has remained neutral on Ukraine, supported peace and was working towards ensuring children who were removed from their homes were returned to their families. Kate Bartlett reporting Dow Futures up around 120 points. This is NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is endorsing a new candidate as city councilor for District 5. Wu says she's throwing her support behind Enrique Pepin. Pepin was her former head of neighborhood services. Wu's endorsement comes instead of support for incumbent Ricardo Arroyo. That's despite her support for him in his 2019 election bid. She also supported Arroyo in his run for district attorney before sexual assault allegations surfaced against him. Arroyo denies those allegations. The Healy administration is set to announce $140 million in awards for some Massachusetts health professionals this morning, as WBUR's Sharon Brody reports that money will go to student loan repayments. The administration says as part of its effort to strengthen the health care workforce, nearly 3,000 primary care and behavioral health providers will get a share of the money to repay student loans. The recipients include doctors, nurses, mental health counselors, substance use recovery coaches, and case managers. In exchange for the loan repayment, the providers commit to working two years in underserved communities in Massachusetts. Each eligible health care professional could get up to $50,000, although the awards are never large than the outstanding loan balances. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody. Massachusetts Congressman Stephen Lynch is facing scrutiny for $3 million in federal earmarks he's received. $2 million will go to his wife's employer, the South Boston Community Health Center. Another million goes to the addiction treatment nonprofit, the Gavin Foundation, where she serves as an unpaid board member. Lynch tells the Boston Globe that earmarks have no impact on his wife's salary and they do not violate congressional rules. The state's unemployment rate has reached a new low. New data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics show the July Massachusetts unemployment rate was at 2.5 percent. Branner Stewart of the UMass Donahue Institute points out that the Massachusetts employment rate is the 10th lowest in the country, and he says employers are still adding jobs. Now we are the eighth fastest growing state in terms of jobs growth. So you put the two together and the Massachusetts economy appears to be quite strong right now. The state's July unemployment rate was just below the national rate of three and a half percent. It's 806. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable and sustainable future. 
The Red Sox pulled off a big win against the Yankees in New York yesterday. The 6-5 final score means the Sox swept the series with three wins. The Sox now travel down to Houston, Texas tonight to take on the Astros. That game gets underway at 8. In your forecast, mostly cloudy today with a chance of late afternoon showers. High temperatures will reach the upper 80s. Tonight, the chance of showers continues and low temperatures dip into the mid-60s. Tomorrow, sunny and clear with a high near 77 degrees. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Los Angeles, California. Coming up, Republican presidential candidates are set to debate this week. What does it mean, though, that former President Trump will not be among them? First, though, in Guatemala, a reformist candidate beat all the odds that is now the country's president-elect. Bernardo Arevalo has been an anti-corruption crusader in a notoriously corrupt country, one where people like him have been persecuted by ruling elites. Remarkably, though, it appears that he won in a landslide with a 20 percentage point lead. NPR's Eder Peralta is on the line with us from Guatemala City. Eder, let's start with the streets. What's been the reaction to the results? Well, look, right now it's uh, very quiet because it's early morning here, but just a few hours ago, it was one big party. Thousands of Guatemalans took to the streets and they waited for their president-elect to emerge from a hotel balcony. And I just want to play some tape of what it was like there. There's fireworks in the sky. There's motorcyclists. People have the Guatemalan flag. This is a moment for Guatemalan people. I think a lot of people here feel that they have defeated a government that had been taking power for the last few years, and they did it. Dígame su nombre. La democracia se defendió. So she says that what she's feeling right now is that democracy has been defended. So at the end there, I asked her, do you think tomorrow will be different? And she said, we have faith and we voted for him on faith. All right. So tell us about this outsider who won by a huge march. I mean, who is he? What's his background? What does it mean for the country? Bernardo Arevalo is a congressman, but of a tiny party that no one really knew until a couple of months ago. He's an academic, a sociologist, and he's the son of Guatemala's first democratically elected president. He was also the unlikeliest candidate to win this election, and that's because, one, he had no money. He was the only candidate who didn't have billboards here, and two, he was running an anti-corruption campaign in a country where the ruling class had been going on a hunt for people fighting corruption. Over the past few years, independent prosecutors, judges, journalists, civil rights defenders uh, have been fleeing Guatemala because the government has been using public institutions to persecute them. And every analyst I've spoken to says Bernardo Arevalo has the chance to be a circuit breaker. He has the chance to stop Guatemala's democratic backslide. And in his victory speech, that's exactly what he said. Las urnas se han expresado he said the votes were counted and what the people say is enough, enough with this corruption. 
I think is though there's always a lot of hope for change in some Latin American countries. What are the chances though of real change coming to Guatemala? Well, I mean, President-elect uh, Bernardo Arevalo would have a tiny minority in Congress, so he's going to have to make deals to govern. And he also has a Justice Department that he won't really control, and that in the past few days has been threatening to bring charges against him. It's worth noting that those threats have been widely viewed as being politically motivated. And then there's his rival. Sandra Torres has not yet conceded, but the president of the country has congratulated Arevalo and said he's ready to help him with with the transition. That's NPR's Ader Peralta in Guatemala City. Thanks for keeping track of this. Thank you, A. Back here in the U.S., Republican candidates are expected to gather on stage in Milwaukee this week for the first big debate of the 2024 presidential race. To qualify, candidates must draw donations from 40,000 individuals and reach 1% support in several polls by today. So while we don't know exactly how many candidates will make the cut, there is one thing we do know. The frontrunner won't be there. Former President Donald Trump says he's going to skip Wednesday's debate in favor of an interview with former Fox News host Tucker Carlson. So how should we think about this? We called Republican strategist Scott Jennings to get his take. Good morning, Scott. Hey, good morning. So obviously Fox was hoping Trump would show up. They made a big push to get him on. He didn't bite. So what's the strategy for the people who do show up? Keep talking about him, take advantage of the fact that he isn't there to suck all the air out of the room? Well, the strategy, I think, for most of them is to try to supplant Ron DeSantis as the front runner of the non-Trump candidates. DeSantis has occupied this space since the beginning of the election. There's obviously blood in the water around his candidacy right now. You've seen him come down a bit and national and state polls. And so everybody on that stage would like to replace Ron DeSantis. And for Mm -hmm. DeSantis, it's a high risk uh, environment because he could either uh, continue to degrade or it's a high reward environment in that he could stabilize his candidacy and reassert his dominance among the non-Trump crowd. So what what advice do you give the other candidates who, how do they talk to voters who, you know, the polls all say Donald Trump still is their first choice? How do they deal with that? Well, uh, you know, for some of them, they've been running against Trump. Chris Christie, Asa Hutchison, who says he's now qualified. I mean, some of these folks have been sort of running against Trump. Some of them have been running as surrogates of Trump, like Vivek Ramaswamy. So I don't know how you would expect to take the nomination away from him if you're running as a surrogate for him. For DeSantis, his message has been Trump broke his promises to us. We love Trump, but he didn't do all the things he told us he was going to do. I suspect he will continue to do that. But at some point, uh, you have to start to ask yourself whether this is an academic conversation. When you look at the polling on Trump over the last couple of weeks, a couple of months, really, it's just uh, gone up and up and up as his legal problems have mounted. And it may not matter much what they say. Uh, Republican voters are obviously responding to the idea that this election uh, should be a chance for Trump to redeem himself or clear his name more than a chance for Republicans to advance their agenda. So before we let you go, I just want to talk about the RNC for a minute and what position there in the Republican National Committee. Mr. Trump, again, talking about him again, has refused to sign a loyalty pledge. And that pledge would say, I'm going to support the nominee no matter what. He's refused to sign this. Does, what, does that mean something for the leadership of the RNC in this process? Well, they're having impacts right now because they've helped solidify Donald Trump's position as the front runner. I mean, who knew that uh, being arrested would bump you up in the polls more than, say, espousing low taxes? <laughs> it's quite a it's quite a conundrum for the rest of the candidates who want to run on policies uh, when they're fighting off Donald Trump, who's 
obviously running on being a victim and a martyr. And nobody's figured out what to do about it yet. And the polls clearly show that Trump's in a dominant position. Republican strategist Scott Jennings, thanks so much. Thank you. Anyone taking a road trip in an electric vehicle this summer, at least an EV that isn't a Tesla, may have struggled with chargers that were full or broken. And that's true even for the CEO of one of the world's biggest automakers. But Jim Farley of Ford hopes a major deal with Tesla will fix the problem. NPR's Camila Damanowski reports. The CEO of Ford was traveling with his family last year in an electric Mustang Mach-E when they passed a big, convenient charging station in Central California. My kids are like, Dad, why can't we charge there? Tesla's superchargers are fast. There are a lot of them. They're reliable and easy to use, and until recently, they were only for Teslas. As Jim Farley remembers it, his kids were blunt. Well, that's stupid. They have, like, a lot of free open spots there. So, yeah. That got us thinking. Earlier this year, Farley made a surprise announcement that Ford was adopting Tesla's charging tech. Ford owners will get to use superchargers, that means revenue for Tesla, and more convenient charging for Ford drivers. After the unexpected move, many other automakers have made the same decision. That deal was on Farley's mind a lot when I met up with him on another road trip. This month, he drove an electric F-150 pickup truck from Northern California to Las Vegas, chatting with customers and trying out charging stops. I had it from a business point of view, like prices are coming down and customers are worried about charging. I didn't have like the human part of it. The frustration of being stuck with non-Tesla charging networks that look at the data or just talk to drivers aren't up to snuff. Right now, Ford is losing money on EVs, but Farley says EVs, especially electric pickups, are super important to Ford because they're key to future growth. So when he was struggling to charge on this road trip... I'm sure glad we did the Tesla charging deal. That's all I can say. That was a good move. Now, we're talking about road trip charging here. Think half-hour charging break along a highway. For everyday driving, the vast majority of EV drivers charge slowly, at home or at work, while they're doing other things. But even though Americans spend a heck of a lot more time commuting than road tripping, charging on the go is a big concern for car shoppers. Toward the end of Farley's road trip, we passed a long, gleaming row of Tesla chargers. Future Fords will be built to match those chargers. And starting in January, existing Ford drivers can use them too. They'll just need an adapter, which might cost a couple hundred bucks. But it's not January yet. That's why I'm roaming parking lots looking for the chargers. Keep going. Farley's 15-year-old son, Jameson, was helping from the back seat. He's like a savant when it comes to finding these chargers. He's like, it's over there, Dad. You're going the opposite way? (laughs) Take a U-Eat or something. Okay, thanks, bro. This is our trip for the last three days. We finally found the charging station, but the first plug? Unavailable. Great. Fantastic. The next one? Broken. We'll have to wait then. Too few, too inconvenient, too unreliable. Adopting Tesla's chargers is one way to tackle this problem. But the country will also need more and better chargers overall. The federal government is spending billions on that, and some automakers are working together to launch another charging network. When I left him at that charger in Las Vegas, Ford CEO Jim Farley still hadn't gotten a drop of juice. But he was confident he would. It might just take a while. Camila Dominoski. NPR News.
This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the federal government has been using COVID relief funds to support child care programs across the country. That funding is set to expire at the end of September, and child care advocates say parents aren't ready. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Earth needs darkness just as much as it needs light. There are some new plants showing their flowers only coming out at night and different bird sounds and different smells. A lot of things going on you don't really notice. Human light pollution is pushing back the dark, which is changing the natural world and could be hurting us, too. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly overcast today with a high around 86. There's a chance of showers late this afternoon. This evening, there are more showers possible, and we'll have a low around 62. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 77. Right now, it's 72 degrees in Boston. Join us next Monday, August 28th, for our first board game night at City Space. Bring friends to compete with or come solo to meet new players. Free tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners, available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple, in stores or delivered from hintwater.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Michelle Martin. Drake was performing at a concert last week when he had his words thrown back at him. And I mean that literally. A fan threw a copy of the artist's poetry book, but Drake managed to catch it before it hit him. You're lucky I'm quick, he said. <laughs> Throwing objects at artists isn't exactly unprecedented, but it seems to be happening a lot in recent months. Rapper Cardi B had a drink thrown at her, and B. Rexa was sent to the hospital after a fan's phone bruised her eye. So what's going on here? Michael Downing is the chief security officer for the Oakview Group. That's an entertainment company. And he says crowds have changed since the pandemic. Probably because fans had been pent up in their homes for so long, and we saw unruly crowds, not wanting to follow rules, fighting and more aggressive behavior. Downing says what's happening now is a far cry from the time-honored tradition of throwing flowers or maybe even underwear. You may have seen things thrown on the stage, but this is targeting the performer and the talent. 
throwing something hard like a bottle or a can directly at somebody, there's an intent there. And Downing says some people may be looking for attention. They see this is getting headlines. They see it's getting attention in the media and they're repeating that behavior. But throwing something at a performer, even something that seems harmless, can result in a variety of criminal charges, including for assault or vandalism. Paul Wertheimer is a crowd security expert in Los Angeles. He says performers throw things too, and that also creates problems. Throwing a projectile into the crowd creates a crowd surge because everybody wants to get a hold of whatever was thrown. People get knocked down and injured as a result. Wertheimer says what has changed recently is the artist's engagement with the crowd. The stage now extends into the crowd. Artists want to get as close to their fans as they can. So the next time you're at a show, don't throw stuff. If you love what you hear, throw your hands up or something like that. Or if you don't, just throw some shade. But leave it there. Just leave it right there. When it comes to Texas's abortion laws, Dr. Austin Denard is affected in several ways at once. She's an OBGYN based in Dallas. She is close to giving birth to her third child, and she sued the state along with 12 other women after the abortion bans affected her own care last year. NPR Selena Simmons-Duffin spoke to her recently about how those laws have started to shift. On a recent Friday night, her husband was making dinner at the family's home in Dallas. Her toddlers were running around underfoot, and Dr. Austin Denard saw an email come through on her phone. Judge Jessica Mangrum, who heard her testify last month in an Austin courtroom about the Texas abortion laws, had ruled decisively in favor of Denard and the other plaintiffs represented by the Center for Reproductive Rights. Mangrum's decision temporarily blocked the Texas abortion bans in cases of serious pregnancy complications. I didn't anticipate the amount of emotion that was just going to pour out of me when I read it. I just, like, scrolled through it and just cried. The first thing she thought about was her own abortion. She's now close to term with a healthy pregnancy, but last summer she had a previous pregnancy that took a tragic turn. Her fetus had a fatal anomaly, and she had to travel out of state for a dilation and curatage, or DNC, procedure. As she read, she saw the ruling specifies that doctors cannot be charged for providing abortions when the fetus is unlikely to survive after birth. I would not have had to go out of state. Like, if I had had this diagnosis right now, I could just call my doctor and have a DNC here. Denard also thought about her OBGYN patients and the possibility of speaking to them openly when they face complications. She says it felt validating that a person in power listened to all of their stories and concluded, this is wrong and needs to change. My husband came over and gave me a big hug and he was crying and it just, it felt really good. Even as she celebrated, she knew it likely wouldn't last long. Less than 12 hours later, attorneys for the state of Texas appealed. Suddenly, all the abortion bans were back in full force. Went back to clinic the next day and put on my white coat and just started seeing patients again with the same, the same laws that are in place, right? It's just, it's like emotional whiplash. There's no set timeline for the Texas Supreme Court to rule in the case. In the meantime, the state legislature has actually moved to change what's banned in Texas. Lawmakers just passed a new law clarifying two conditions that do qualify for abortions, 
Preterm premature rupture of membranes, which is when someone's water breaks too early for the fetus to survive. And ectopic pregnancy, when a fertilized egg implants somewhere besides the uterine lining. Denard thinks the new law is helpful, but inadequate. If this leads to physicians feeling more comfortable practicing standard medical care, then I'm all about it, right? It's just such a small little portion of reasons why patients need care in pregnancy. The new law goes into effect on September 1st. As Denard awaits the birth of her third child, she's thinking a lot about what it means to participate in the lawsuit challenging the abortion bans. Standing alongside some incredibly brave women, talking about abortion, which is such a taboo subject, and really putting it all out there in such a raw way is difficult. She says it's also been energizing to be part of the lawsuit, and she thinks it's helping to change how people think about abortion restrictions and how they affect people's lives. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR's Morning Edition. WBUR's Gabriela Emanuel tells us about increasing concerns that immigrant families seeking shelter in Massachusetts are staying in units without staff or support. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. A group of researchers recently claimed that a new material could lead to a scientific breakthrough in superconducting. Social media was buzzing with the news, but other academics were skeptical. We tried to get electric current through it. We just couldn't. The scientific reality of LK99 on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Hurricane Hillary has been downgraded to a post-tropical cyclone as it lashes Southern California and parts of Nevada with high winds and torrential rain. Richard Pash of the National Hurricane Center says the storm could produce catastrophic flooding in some areas. The center is becoming ill-defined, but the rains are going to continue, and so and get rainfall amounts up to 10 inches in some places. Public schools in the Los Angeles area are closed for the day. The storm is also impacting flights across the U.S. An estimated 25 million people from Southern California northward to Idaho are under flood alerts.
Emergency crews are working to contain a series of wildfires burning near Spokane, Washington. Ryan Krauss spent hours sifting through the wreckage of his home on Sunday and described the fire as it approached. You could see the weather weather change and the wind start getting sucked in and it was just a like a like a train coming just a, just that kind of a rumbly sound and then the boom 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 and at that point you don't even have to you don't have to look at it anymore you can hear it that close it's yeah. time to go governor jay inslee has declared a state of emergency this is npr news in washington from WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Environmental Protection Agency is planning to disband the panel of scientists that has kept an eye on the health of Massachusetts Bay for more than 20 years. The panel monitors treated wastewater discharged into the ocean. And as WBUR's Barbara Moran reports, the EPA's plan is raising concerns about who will be watching out for the bay. After two decades of work, the panel found that the wastewater discharge from Deer Island has had no adverse impact on the bay. So, when the EPA drafted the new discharge permit this year, it cut the advisory panel out. But members of the panel, like oceanographer Joe Rosen, say the bay still needs their help, monitoring things like climate change, algae, and low oxygen blobs. Who is going to be looking at Mass Bay uh, for the problems that are currently emerging. And it's not just the dissolved oxygen, it's also a lot of other things, including the PFAS, the forever chemicals, well, we, okay. which we haven't really started even looking at. The EPA permit is open for public comment until November 28. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. The superintendent of Amherst Schools is resigning. The resignation of Michael Morris comes months after allegations that counselors at the district's middle school discriminated against LGBTQ plus students. The district says the resignation is not due to any wrongdoing. Morris recently returned from a medical leave. He was with the district for over two decades. It's now legal to charge your electric vehicle across sidewalks in Cambridge. City officials tell the Boston Globe it's part of an effort to encourage EV ownership. The new pilot program allows people to string a charging cord from a residence across a sidewalk. The cord needs to be covered by an ADA-accessible ramp to be approved. It's 833. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. The Red Sox are celebrating a win and a series sweep against the Yankees. The team defeated their division rivals 6-5 to in New York yesterday. The Sox now continue their 10-game road trip with their final series in Houston. Tonight's game starts at 8. Highs in the mid-80s today under cloudy skies that may give way to showers late this afternoon and evening. Tonight, it'll be in the low 60s, upper 70s tomorrow under clear skies. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Los Angeles. And I'm Michelle Martin in Washington, D.C. If you buy pretty much anything, then you know that inflation has been a big issue for some time now. But even as some costs have been easing, costs for childcare have been climbing at nearly double the rate of inflation. And now parents could be facing what's being called the childcare cliff. $24 billion in federal funding for childcare expires at the end of next month. That's money that helped keep childcare providers at work during the pandemic and then afterward. We'd like to understand what could happen. So we've called Dr. Julie Morita. She's executive vice president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. She's also a pediatrician and a mom. And she's with us now. Dr. Morita, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me this morning. So I think people who have young children already know that childcare in the U.S. can be expensive, can be difficult to access. But for people who don't know, can you kind of put a frame around it? I mean, what is the general situation and what could happen when this specific funding ends? Right. So, you know, as you pointed out, I am a mother, I'm a pediatrician, I'm also a public health official. And I know firsthand that caregiving really does make everything possible. And what the pandemic did, it really made clear how essential it is. So even before the pandemic, for generations, the ability to afford childcare has really been determined by factors such as race and income. And providers are often women of color and immigrants who've not received livable wages or essential benefits like health insurance. So healthcare costs increased by over 20% from 2005 to 2021. And low-income families can sometimes pay as much as five times what higher-income families pay as a portion of their incomes. Mm. So the cost of child care is just extraordinarily high and often makes it inaccessible for many. So now the estimates are telling us what about if this funding ends? How, what could the immediate impacts be and for whom? Sure. The, uh, what we, we know is that with uh, the American Rescue Plan Act covered about $24 billion for stabilization of funding for child care providers. And if, if that funding goes away without any kind of additional support, over 3 million children could actually lose care to access, access to care. And over 200,000 child care providers could lose their jobs, in addition to 70,000 child care facilities closing. Hmm. What, so what are the prospects that any of that federal funding that was delivered to child care providers over the last three years will be extended? That's our hope, is that some of this funding will actually be extended. The current Biden administration has really done a lot of things to actually try to strengthen child care supports, but it is require, it does require direct uh, infusion of resources and dollars to help stabilize the child care uh, sector. Would you use the word crisis to describe what could happen if that funding disappears? Well, I think the pandemic really did make clear how dependent we all are on, on child, the child care system. It really is a public good that boosts our economic participation and growth, workforce development, and child well-being. Without an additional infusion of resources, millions of children could really lose access to the care, and that impacts their families as well in so many other ways. And just, we only have a couple of seconds left, but what are some of the other things that need to happen so that kids who need to be in safe, healthy, and nurturing environments will be in those I mean, I think really there has to be the infusion of resources. There's also an executive order that was passed by the administration and some considerations for HHS to strengthen some of the federal resources. But states can do other things to strengthen their child care sectors as well. 
and parents, so parents can actually retain the care that they need for their children, and our children can really grow up to be healthy and mentally, physically, emotionally. All those things are really impacted significantly by by the availability of childcare. That is Dr. Julie Morita, Executive Director of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Dr. Morita, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Black lung is an incurable, deadly disease that's on the rise, especially among coal miners in central Appalachia, where researchers estimate one in five will get black lung. Now, the federal government's considering tighter safety restrictions that include cutting silica dust limits in mines, but that's not all it would do. Justin Hicks of Louisville Public Media in Kentucky and Roxy Todd of Radio IQ in Virginia report on how the rules could affect more than just coal mines. Eleven years ago, a doctor diagnosed coal miner Gary Cook with complicated black lung disease. Now he has to gasp for air just to speak. He said it would slowly eat my lungs up. And it's, it's about got him. Cook's disease comes from inhaling silica dust, which gets trapped in lungs. In recent years, miners have had to dig through more layers of rock to find coal, generating more deadly silica dust. Doctors in southwest Virginia, where Cook lives, are seeing more cases of the most advanced form of black lung, even among young miners. Drew Harris works at Stone Mountain Health Services. I'm 42 years old, and I have patients who are my age who are dying from black lung. He says the tentative silica rule from the Department of Labor is a great start, but he criticizes the proposal for relying too heavily on companies to self-report dust levels. Miners tell him they're often told by their bosses to cheat. I hear about these dishonest practices all the time when I talk with my Stone Mountain patients. And I'm not asking them to tell me these things. They just tell me these things. Harris was speaking at a recent hearing for the new silica rule in Arlington, Virginia. He urged regulators to also drop language that would allow mine companies to keep workers in toxic environments. The proposal right now lets them do so temporarily, as long as miners wear respirators. I'm just going to put it on so you can hear what it sounds like when I talk. It's so much harder to communicate underground. He argues that miners won't wear respirators. They're also uncomfortable and hot. He wants mining companies to be required to clean up toxic environments instead. The guy in charge of regulating mines for the federal government is Chris Williamson. This agency's mission is very clear, and it's not just focused on coal miners. He wants to include all U.S. mines in the new rule. Coal's only 10% of them. Those coal mines have to offer medical exams, And the new rule would extend that requirement to places like sand and gravel quarries, too. We're going to move forward, and I, you know, I can't in good conscience leave any miners behind in this. But there are opponents of any new regulation. DJ Smoots owns a company that trains mine operators to follow safety rules. At the hearing in Arlington, he said smaller companies won't be able to bear the costs of additional dust testing and medical exams. Every little community you go to, there is a sand and gravel pit of some sort, because how else are they going to get their concrete? This will put small mines out of business, as is currently written. There is no doubt in my mind. Federal regulations always take a while to finalize, and the feds say now is the time to speak up. People have until mid-September to weigh in. While miners wait for new safety rules, Gary Harrison knows their health hangs in the balance. He's president of the National Black Lung Association and testified in front of federal regulators in West Virginia. What get me so mad? We heard the coal company say, we keep the light on. Guess what? It ain't the coal company keeping it on. It's the coal miners. 
The Department of Labor will hold one more public hearing in Denver, Colorado today. For NPR News, I'm Roxy Todd in Virginia. And I'm Justin Hicks in Kentucky. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us how companies are trying to stay competitive in a tight hiring market by offering unlimited paid time off. Experts say the benefit has pitfalls. Cloudy in mid-80s today. There's a slight chance of showers late this afternoon and this evening. Low 60s tonight, then sunny tomorrow with temperatures in the upper 70s. Right now it's 73 degrees in Boston. Now in business news, a heart device made by Danvers-based Abiomed is being partially recalled. Last week, the Food and Drug Administration labeled it a Class 1 recall. That means it could cause serious injuries or death. The minimally invasive heart pump was originally recalled in June, just months after Abiomed was acquired by Johnson & Johnson. Abiomed says the device can still be used by doctors, but they need to take caution in high-risk patients. Massachusetts cannabis regulators are not expected to change a rule on cannabis delivery anytime soon. The rule from the Cannabis Control Commission requires two people to be in a car for any cannabis delivery. Those against the rule tell the Boston Business Journal it makes payroll and insurance more expensive. The commission isn't expected to take up the rule again until after November. Storyland Amusement Park in New Hampshire plans to expand. The park is opening a farm-themed water play area next year. The area, called Moo Lagoon, will include fountains, sprayers, and slides. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Symbiosis Learning Center in Milton, now enrolling for the upcoming year. A nurturing and mindful environment for middle and high school students. SymbiosisLearningCenter.com and AL Prime Energy Consultant, providing wholesale and retail fuel products located in more than 60 communities in and around Greater Boston. ALPrime.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. The population in the Massachusetts shelter system has increased to the point where some families are staying in hotel and motel units without the usual services. More than 600 households are currently unstaffed. That accounts for more than 10 percent of all shelter units. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel joins us now to explain what that means and the concerns about it. Good morning, Gabriella. Good morning, Rupa. What exactly does it mean for a shelter unit to be unstaffed? Yes. So normally a family that's in the state system stays in shelters that are overseen by a provider. That's typically a nonprofit that coordinates services that a family might need. So things like transportation, looking for housing, maybe some clothing or um, translation services or questions about enrolling your kid in school. But right now, the demand for shelter has increased so much over the last year or so that there just aren't enough of these staffed shelter units. So the state is finding a hotel room or a motel unit to give folks a roof over their head. And the state says they're providing food, diapers, and formula, but there's no staff that's on site to really support these families. And people are raising concerns about that. Yes, there are quite a few concerns. Many of these families may not speak English or only have limited English. And 
often they don't have easy access to transportation. I did speak with Adam Hool at Greater Boston Legal Services, and he says he gets several calls a week about these families. I had an organization call me about two weeks ago, and at that time they were telling me about like 10 families that had no access to food. And in this instance, there was food and formula available, but these families didn't know where to go to find them, and that's because they didn't speak a common language with hotel employees. Another serious concern is families in shelters sometimes don't have access to work permits, and then they can be targets for scams or people who try to take advantage of them. Staffed shelter units have people who kind of watch who come and go, and we don't know exactly what's happening at all of these unstaffed units. Has this ever happened before in Massachusetts? Well, there's some debate about that. Uh, The idea of getting creative and having to find new overflow spaces is definitely not new. But I'm hearing that something like this has not happened in many years and definitely not at this scale. We're seeing it now because there is a real housing crunch. And like a lot of states, Massachusetts is seeing more immigrant families who have had to leave their homes because of problems like violence or economic hardship. And what's different is Massachusetts has a lot that requires shelter for every homeless family that qualifies. The governor declared a state of emergency because of the rapidly rising number of families in the shelter system. Has that helped at all? Not specifically about this situation. A spokesperson for the state says they are working to get providers to staff these units. And I am hearing from providers that officials at the state level are working on a bigger plan. And I can tell you many of them are itching to get specifics there. I spoke with Danielle Ferrier, who runs Heading Home, which provides some 350 family shelter units. And she says the state clearly cares about this issue, but she described the current situation as chaotic. There's a lot of folks that want to be helpful, and we just need someone who is organizing us so that we aren't duplicating or or dropping uh, and have gaps that, that we could fill. Farrier would like to see the state tap the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency to kind of coordinate things. Others say there needs to be better pay and incentives for frontline staff. But I should add there are community groups, religious organizations that are stepping up in a real way. So these are synagogues, churches, other groups that are, you know, finding food, becoming greeters, giving gift cards. Advocates say those groups need to be vetted and trained. Boston and the state also just got nearly $2 million in federal emergency funding. Is that supposed to go toward improving the situation? Well, that funding is going toward newly arrived immigrant families, but it is not specifically for these unstaffed shelter units. A spokesperson for the agency overseeing family shelter says these units are meant to be temporary. He said there are conversations that are ongoing about how to transition families to longer term providers and ultimately to permanent housing. WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel, thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the latest on the celebrations after the Spanish soccer team won that country's first Women's World Cup trophy. And they'll look at what caused Russia's first lunar mission in nearly 50 years to fail. It's 8.50. 
group of researchers recently claimed that a new material could lead to a scientific breakthrough in superconducting. Social media was buzzing with the news, but other academics were skeptical. We tried to get electric current through it. We just couldn't. The scientific reality of LK99 on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. President Joe Biden heads to Maui today to survey damage from the wildfires, with Hawaii now bracing for the impact of a tropical storm. Millions of residents are in danger of flash flooding around Southern California as now tropical cyclone Hillary continues to hit the area with rain. And a reformist anti-corruption candidate in Guatemala is the country's newest president-elect. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. There's a slight chance of late afternoon showers today. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy and in the mid-80s. Early this evening, there are more showers possible as temperatures fall to the low 60s. Tomorrow, clear skies and upper 70s. Right now, it's 73 degrees in Boston. How last year's crummy stock market narrowed the gap between rich and poor worldwide. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. I'm David Brancaccio. Global household wealth, total assets of all humans, has gone down. The new report from the financial firm UBS uses data from last year, which also found the gap between rich and poor also fell globally. Here's Marketplace's Kristen Schwab. Thank you, David. I'm so excited to be here with you today. What's this about this project? Like what, the people who brought us the digital revolution and the biosciences revolution and the AI revolution ought to be able to come up with something to help cities like San Francisco? Well, I certainly think that is a part of it. But as you suggest, we have certainly experienced an economic downturn and a stagnant recovery since COVID. Occupancy remains at roughly a third of pre-pandemic levels, lower than about 50 other major cities across the country. And the downtown occupancy challenges on San Francisco's economy is significant, with office-based industries accounting for nearly three quarters of the city's gross domestic product, the government now forecasts $780 million in a deficit in the upcoming two fiscal years. And so that's why we created, in collaboration with the World Economic Forum and Salesforce, as you suggested, our challenge really to help bring back San Francisco vibrancy. Okay. And if people come up with ideas, there's an important stipulation. The challenge is mindful of United Nations development goals. I mean, particularly the one to make cities more inclusive, safe, resilient, but do it sustainably. That's a key word. That's exactly right. This is a unique call to action for entrepreneurs to submit sustainable solutions that contribute to the significant needs of San Francisco. Look, I think some of the solutions could include new approaches to urban food production, water resources, waste management. There is plenty to think about and to innovate on. Cities are 
home also to the majority of our world's populations. And they account for 80% of GDP. Despite occupying only 3% of the world's land, cities consume two-thirds of global energy demand and 70% of CO2 emissions. So that's why we think it is so incredibly important to, again, create a challenge that has sustainability at the forefront. Another thing that the San Francisco mayor talked about as she talked about the city's ambitions is to become the artificial intelligence capital of the world. And here's what Mayor Breed had to say about why companies choose her city. Of course, many of the investments and the angel investors and the folks who are located in this area, but also they say this is the densest population of engineering talent anywhere in the world. So Kirsten Rhodes, you must be hearing the two letters AI in some of the uh, ideas. It's consuming every conversation that I have, David, with clients, with partners. I would agree with her. We do see early stage investors building capabilities here. And certainly you've got some of the dominant players right here in our backyard, broader in the Bay Area, that are putting incredible resources and dollars to invest in AI. Kirsten Rhodes, San Francisco Managing Principal at Deloitte. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. I appreciate the time today. Now, you need to know that it's called the Yes San Francisco Urban Sustainability Challenge, and it's being led by the World Economic Forum, the San Francisco-based tech platform Salesforce, and that consulting firm Deloitte. Nordstrom said in May it is closing in downtown San Francisco, citing lower foot traffic, while some other retailers are also leaving this weekend. The Swedish home goods chain IKEA held a friends and family soft opening for its new store on San Francisco's Market Street. It's a quarter million square feet, a smaller urban variant of IKEA's traditional really big box stores. Now, back to this topic, global household wealth, total assets of humans going down. Here's Marketplace's Kristen Schwab. Global wealth data gives us a sense of where wealth is concentrated. Franco Milanovic is an economist at the City University of New York. The gaps are so enormous that for the same person having such different experience in life is difficult to defend. Part of what's behind the narrowing wealth inequality gap is China's rapid economic growth over the last 15 years or so. And it was not solely China. It was also India, Indonesia, Thailand, all the countries that are relatively poor that have grown very fast. But the biggest reason for the narrowing inequality gap was global wealth's decline. Adam Hollowell at Duke's Center on Social Equity says people at the top lost money in the stock market. Financial assets in North America depreciated significantly in 2022. That doesn't mean that the material circumstances of the global poor have changed. The report predicts that after dipping in 2022, global wealth is expected to rise nearly 40% over the next five years. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. Markets, S&P futures are up four-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are up six-tenths of a percent. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. And by Charles Schwab. The people at Schwab are passionate about helping investors. Learn more at schwab.com slash why Schwab. 
Spain won England 0-1-0, as they say, another winner, the FIFA Women's World Cup with 2 million tickets sold worldwide. Here's the former vice captain of Australia's national team, Moya Dodd, about the profile of women's soccer going forward. It's a growing sport. More and more women are engaged in playing and watching the game. I think globally, it's clear that the axis has shifted a little bit on sport. Sport now belongs to women. Football now belongs to women. And there's no reason why this can't continue to be the growth engine of the game. Spain now joins Germany as the only two countries with teams that have won both the women's and the men's cups. Olga Carmona scored the winning goal for Spain yesterday. Her family had withheld the news from Carmona until after the match that her ailing father had died, a consideration affecting some celebrations in Spain that had been set for today. I'm David Brancaccio. It's the Marketplace Morning Report. May PM, American Public Media. Mostly cloudy and mid-80s today with a chance of showers late this afternoon. More rain possible this evening as it falls to the low 60s. Clear skies tomorrow with temperatures in the upper 70s. About the same on Wednesday. Right now, it's 74 degrees in Boston and the BBC News Hour is coming up next. Here and now host Deepa Fernandez, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.